Hello and good evening. Um, my name is Nico Heller and this is Reboot 2030, the Democracy Schools YouTube channel. This is our second Reboot installment uh, of this uh, season. And it's a great pleasure to have with me today, Professor John Davenport. Uh, John is a professor of philosophy at Fordham University in New York. And he teaches and researches on political philosophy, ethics, existentialism, moral psychology, and some topics uh, within the, the area of the philosophy religion. He's also the author of A League of Democracies, and he is currently working on a number of new books. The book he is here to discuss today is his latest, and it's called The Democracy Amendments, Constitutional Reforms to save the United States. So John is here, so let me welcome him in. There he is. John, how are you doing? You need to, you need to unmute yourself. Uh, he kind of disappeared again, so he will have to come back in. So it's a really pleasure to have John here today because, of course, we've just had the midterm elections in the US. And so all eyes are on the, the machinery of democracy, if you like, in, in the US. There's been a lot, of, a lot of debate around the validity of elections, especially on the, on the populist right. Um, and, um, and so it's been quite interesting to observe uh, these elections and the question really that is as well you know the red wave that so many people had um had expected or had predicted it didn't happen and and i guess what i'd like to know before we go into the debate the substance of the discussion is is well what john thinks about about this and whether well given that it's been a fairly from looking at it from the distance a fairly civilized uh, uh election this time compared to previous elections whether some of the some of the doubts whether it's really as bad as as people think uh, think uh, it is currently is in the U.S. Now, um, of course, I lost him and I am trying to get him back. I have no idea what happened, so I guess there he is. Let's see whether he manages this time. We we'll try again. Okay, now let's see. Okay, there he comes again. Let me see. Okay, and he's still. Okay, so I can see you, but you're still muted. Uh, so you have there's a button there on the go. screen. Ah, uh, now you're there. Good, good, good. Can you hear me? good. Yes, I'm very <laughs> sorry. Um, the uh, Fordham University account uh, makes you go through a zillion steps now, and uh, it kicked me out of the meeting and made me log in again. So many, many apologies there. Uh, no problem at all. I'm so glad that 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 we found together. I have made a very brief introduction already. Um, you know, told the few way that you're working at uh, uh, Fordham University, a pro professor of philosophy, and that you are just about to come out with a new book, The Democracy Amendments, Constitutional Reforms to Save the United States. Well, let's let's sort of start with the kind of the current political situation, which I believe is still not settled. There have just been uh, midterm elections. We expect, of course, the Republicans to take the House. We don't know it for sure yet, but we do know that they haven't taken the Senate. And there was this 
expectation that there might be a red wave, um, a Republican wave overrolling the country and they would decimate uh, the Democrats. That hasn't happened. These predictions were way off the mark. Uh, so my very first question, of course, are things really as bad uh, as some people think? Or are these elections proof that things are getting better? Well, uh, I understand why many people see this as positive news. It, it is relative to what it could have been. It could have been much worse. Um, so you, you could look at it this way, Nico, that our situation in the United States has gone downhill so much in the last 10 to 15 years that now we look at results like this as encouraging. That there, But really, I think that's a, a, a sort of, um, if you like, a false context or false background by which to compare and assess what we're seeing. We have to remember that Many different um, uh, officials across the country, both at the federal and state level, have been elected who deny the 2020 election outcomes. Um, in um, uh, in Arizona, for example, I don't know if I think it's called now uh, for the uh, Democrat for governor, but this infamous woman Carrie Lake, uh, who you know almost won uh, for Republican governor in Arizona, is one of the fiercest election deniers you'll ever find and really a brutal kind of partisan extremist. Um, she told even, you know, John McCain supporters, a moderate Republican in his time, to get out of her uh, <laughs> campaign events. I mean, uh, this woman still got at least 49% or 48.5% of the vote, something like that. So things are not, I, I think we're still in, in a pretty rough time. And, and after the next presidential election, there are a number of things that could go wrong. Um, we could see presidential electors in our weird system for electing the president um, who are appointed directly by state government rather than by elected by voters. Uh, there's very likely to be a Supreme Court case in the next few months, um, maybe as late as uh, summer of next year, that will enable state legislatures to do that. Just the thing that Trump and his, um, his operatives tried to get after uh, the 2020 elections, try to get state legislatures to throw out who the voters elect and put in their own electors. So there are a number of things like that coming down the pike. Um, I don't want to go on too much, but I'll give you just one other thing, important point about the House of Representatives. Um, so it looks pretty clear that the Republicans are going to going to have the House. Um, they need one or two more uh, you know, co confirmed wins for House seats. So the thing is, though, they would be nowhere close to winning. They clearly they would have lost the House decisively if it weren't for two things. The fact that in the states that they control, especially those states, uh, which is almost half the states where they have both branches of the state legislature and the governor. So they have kind of the trifecta. So they can put in any law they want. They have gerrymandered all the election districts that we use for our single member seats for the House of Representatives enough to give them at least seven or eight seats, six to seven, maybe very conservative estimate, just from the way that they carved up district lines. For example, in Florida, uh, they seem to have won, uh, well, to do the math, I guess, uh, 16 out of the 24 districts. No, it's more than that because it's 28. So they, they've won, um, I think, you know, more than two thirds of the districts in Florida even though the, in the party registrations, the, the state of Florida is maybe 48% Democrat, you know, 
Um, at one time, until pretty recently, Democrats were in the majority of elected or registered voters in Florida. But the gerrymandering alone, you know, is giving them at least three or four seats in Florida. But let me uh, let me be let, yeah. let me be the devil's advocate here. I mean, the the American Constitution, you know, is is over two hundred years old, and it served the country well. Um, so you could say, well, there's nothing wrong with the Constitution. It's society that's kind of gone off the rails. Um, so what is it? Is it society? Is it politics? Or is it the Constitution? Why? Why? Why do we now find us in a situation where the Constitution all of a sudden doesn't seem to serve its purpose anymore? Well, um, yeah, I think it's both. It's both the Constitution and the structures that it leads to uh, and the results that that has on the populace. Um, people say, well, yes, it's the fault of the citizens because they've gone, too many of them seem to have gone mad almost. You know, they're trying to elect more and more extreme candidates. But part of the reason for that is that we can't um, pass laws very well anymore through the normal route in Congress because of the filibuster in the Senate, because of the sort of thing we're seeing in this House election that, you know, the majority of the House doesn't represent a majority of the country, um, because of the Supreme Court rejecting things that, you know, even two thirds or more of the American public want. So people get frustrated and they don't think of, that there's a constitutional problem behind this. They don't see the root cause of the issue. They just see the effects of the, the surface level symptoms. And they think, well, then what we need is a more extreme candidate who's going to get in there and do something. They tried that with Trump. It really didn't work. He, he like Biden now will experience, could really only pass anything in the first two years. Um, but but let, me, yeah. let, me, let, me, let me be once more the, 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 the devil's advocate here. You could, you could turn this round, couldn't you? And you could argue and say, well, the Constitution as it is by kind of in a way blocking the political process in so many instances, as you, as you just described, it's actually a guarantor of stability. Uh, mm. And many of the laws that would be passed would be so extreme um, mm. that it would actually harm the country more than not passing in the first place. What do you say about that? Right. Well, um, two things. I think a lot of Americans still believe that. Um, and they think that, you know, actually this is producing stability, the fact that we've got kind of minority rule in the Senate, which you would have even without the filibuster because of the fact that every state has two senators, despite its population sizes, wildly varying uh, by factors of almost 70 to one. Um, so, yes, there there is kind of minority control that makes it almost impossible uh, to get laws passed through our system. But in the long run, I would argue that actually makes the system less stable because people lose faith in government. They don't believe that carrying elections is going to produce the desired result. And another result of that is that they never learn if they're mistaken about their policy preferences because they don't see them enacted. For contrast, if you look at parliamentary systems where um, you know people do get what they wanted uh, or they get the platform for which they voted, Except, of, of course, in a case like Liz Truss, where, you know, the prime minister is not elected, but comes in because someone else uh, resigned or lost a vote of no confidence. But when you um, elect somebody whose platform is mistaken or wrong in various respects, you'll see the results and you'll learn. Let <laughs> me be, well, I, I, right. obviously, I hope you realize that I'm kind of with your argument, but I'm just, I just want to kind of go through a number of kind of concerns that people might have or questions that people might raise. So let me just follow on with one more question. Mm. I mean, I suppose one of the 
what one of the kind of the fundamental changes that you'd like to see is a system that is moving more towards sort of a sort of proportional representation. Now, if you look at countries that have proportional representation, I just named two: um, Israel and Italy. Uh, yes. And if you look at those two countries and at the kind of extreme nature of politics in both of these countries at the moment, Good has life. that really been the solution? Well, right. This is where you see, uh, if you like, the downsides or the evils of a parliamentary system, instability, governments quickly rising and falling, uh, elections too often. I mean, people in Israel must just be sick of going to, to the polls after uh, so many in a row. Is it five, um, two years or something? Yeah, so this is a genuine problem, but the United States is in no danger of running into those problems because I wouldn't even begin to propose a parliamentary system for this country. Americans would never accept it. All of the um, reforms proposed in, in my book, the democracy amendments, um, are ones that move only a little bit, or if you like, just modest steps away from the status quo. Um, as a package as a whole, they would make an enormous difference. Uh, but they're not as radical, for example, as say just switching to a parliamentary system. You eliminate the presidency. You just have a, a prime minister, right? Uh, those would be far too extreme steps to propose here. So what you could see in the United States, if ranked choice voting, some countries call this preferential voting, like you have in Australia, right, where you can rank your first, second, and your third choice candidates for any given office, um, that could produce... Um, and it would be good if it did, in my view, a few smaller parties that might rise to the point where they could get a few seats in the House of Representatives. Uh, they're very unlikely to win a whole state and get a senator at the moment. But what this would do is it would produce uh, a situation where perhaps there did have to be some kind of coalition support to move things through the House of Representatives. Uh, this would be better, uh, in my view, because it would force the two main parties to, if you like, move towards the middle and compromise, right? In order not to lose uh, their seats to other new parties that are trying to occupy that middle ground, uh, the political center, if you like, they would have to moderate, uh, especially if we also reform the primary election system, uh, which most often determines uh, the who's actually going to be your representative in the House of Representatives, given that we have so many safe seats due to gerrymandering. So these problems you have to understand sort of combine and you have to disentangle what are the different root sources or causes of the problem. Um, but in the United States, you could do this without destabilizing the system because uh, it would be a long time before you would get to the point where say you had three parties of equal size or roughly equal power. It's hard to see that happening even with ranked choice voting uh, for several decades. And instead what you would see, right, is that the parties now, um, uh, well, they, they try to, you know, to at least get their candidates to be the preferred second choice. If you're a Green Party voter, the Democrats want you to rank their candidate as second choice when the Green Party doesn't, doesn't win outright or doesn't have enough first place votes. If you're a Libertarian voter, the Republican Party wants you to nominate, to put their candidate as your second choice. You can also do, well, I'm not sure if Israel has a rule like this or Italy, you can put a floor threshold or a bottom threshold on the percentage you need in order uh, to be able to, you know, to receive 
any representation in in the house right you could say that that's right i mean in, yeah. in the german system in the german system it is which also has proportional representation there is sort of a threshold of five percent of the vote yes. that you have to obtain in order to get right. you know but not just to get a seat but also to actually receive funding uh you know for you know for, for like to, to campaign in elections so there is a there, mm -hmm. there's a financial hurdle and of course a parliamentary hurdle to be taken uh, and of course yes. you have two votes you have got one vote for a candidate and you've got one vote for a party and you know so yeah. that basically gives you the kind of the proportional aspect uh, of it um, it kind of, of course, weakens democracy in a sense, because if you vote for party, you don't know, they go onto a list, onto a party list, and the party then decides who fills that slot, and this may not be the candidate that, that you might have liked to see there. So, but let me just ask you one very last, again, you know, sort of a devil's advocate question before we move on to, to your actual book and, and what you're proposing. Um, it, 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 it seems to me that you know, constitutional reform in the US, in fact, most reforms, wherever you lo look and whatever you do, are very hard to be thought of as bipartisan reforms. There'll always be winners and losers. And yes. it's hard to see you as a Republican. So clearly people would instantly say, well, surely he puts his arguments forward because he wants the Democrats to have, you know, a better a position in, 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 in the body politics, and uh, not just in elections, but also um, in Congress and so on and so forth. So. Uh, what would you say to these people? To what extent is this also in the interest of the Republican Party and Republican voters? Mm. Why is this not, in your view, a partisan argument, but an argument in the interest of the public good or, you know, in, in everybody's interest? Oh, great question. And, and maybe if you like, I can answer that. If we have time, briefly come back to a comment on the German system. There, there are two important points to maybe get in there. So to answer your question, though, um, I do think this is one of the biggest uh, hurdles in order to, to sell uh, a package or an agenda of constitutional reforms. And that's what this book tries to do, really to lay out a whole agenda, um, almost a comprehensive agenda, although the book doesn't actually cover every substantive question you would want to deal with. Things like abortion aren't, uh, aren't discussed in it, for example, or birthright citizenships, controversial here now as well. Um, but I try to argue in the first chapter of the book uh, that people should look at these sort of procedural changes in you know, how we run election, how laws are made, how people get campaign finance, what's allowed uh, in the sources of funding and how much you can spend. One of the amendments deals with that. Uh, changes in you know, ranked choice voting is another procedural amendment. Changes in how laws are made in Congress, you know, whether you have a filibuster to block things in the Senate or not. I argue that um, people should evaluate these proposals based not on, well, how would my party now do under this system, but rather what would my party become and how would it operate under so many, especially if we combine several changes. Um, so... <laughs> You can't really imagine if you tried to redesign a game of football so that the rules were dramatically different, right? You now had a, a circular rather than a, a, a rectangular playing field, and you had two rather than one goal on each end, or you had three goalies rather than one. You can't now ask, well, you know, uh, how would Manchester United do um, playing in that situation? You would have a different team, right? I mean, it, people would build their teams differently based on different skills that were needed. By the same token, to give you an example from American races, if you say, well, we should stop, get rid of the electoral college and directly elect the president, just 
you know, by a majority vote across the country with ranked choice voting, you'd very likely get someone with an absolute majority after votes were reassigned or pretty close to it, um, even if you had a number of third party candidates running. Well, so they'll say, look, then Trump wouldn't have been elected in 2016 uh, because uh, Hillary Clinton would have won, did win the, the national popular vote. Same for George W. Bush in the year 2000. But this is a mistake because when Clinton and Trump ran in 2016, they weren't running to try to win the national popular vote. They were running to try to pick off those swing states that would give them the Electoral College. They only campaigned, almost all their campaign stops were in eight or nine states. Um, so you have to ask yourself instead, the right question is, well, how would a Republican party, say they're running Ron DeSantis in 2024, how would their, their candidate do in a nationwide vote where the campaign aimed to win the popular vote? That's a completely different way of running the president presidential election. So uh, that empowers many, many more voters along the way, because now Republicans in New York state, which is a deep blue state, their vote counts towards the national total. And likewise, um, well, let's say Democrats in Texas, right, whose vote is zeroed out by the Electoral College because they didn't win Texas outright, um, their vote would count towards the national total. So if you hopefully you see what I mean. Um, there's there's no way to simply imagine the current parties in their present way of acting and being operating under this new system. They would be different. They would be different parties. I guess they, so, they, 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 yeah. I think one of the key factors would be sort of the lead time. And, and I think we come to this and, the, you know, how this is kind of developed and we come to this because you're talking about, um, you know, a, a constitutional convention as well. And we, we, we come to this in, in, in the second half of the talk, but, you know, why this might actually help in this process. Going back to the, the football analogy, the, uh, what I find a more sort of fitting kind of uh, idea is, is like if you would say, well, in future, we're going to have 13 as opposed to 12 players. And some teams yes. already have these extra players that are very good, but other mm. teams may have to build them up first. So if you, you know, or they, you say you have 11 instead of 12, and, and then you, so the, the choreography on the field changes and you need different skill sets in different positions. And I think it's that kind of thinking. And of course, if you would give people time to build up to it, then the, the, the whole debate moves from the actual tactics on the playing field to the audience experience, you know, the kind of the viewer experience. Does this make a better game of football or not? And then, of course, football teams might actually kind of fall into line and might see a future for themselves in an improved game. And I think this is, I think, what you're kind of trying to, to, to get to is that we need to improve the game so that people, and that is also the electorate and its voters, stay in the game and that politics is revitalized. Isn't that a fair way of sort of putting it? That's right. As opposed to, no, that's absolutely correct. But the alternative that this country is facing now is that, in order to win the football game, um, one of the teams is ready to burn down the stadium, right? And, you know, accuse the umpires of well, being- the goal. <laughs> right, you know, accuse them of being planted by the other team and um, and deny that that their opponents score, scored a goal when everybody saw that they scored a goal, right? So we're getting to a point where the game is about to kind of collapse and people will no longer agree to play it and and, recognize the outcome. Okay, my team lost this time and yours won. Uh, we'll have a rematch in a little while. Now, that's that's coming to a point where it could end and 
the only alternative um, to these aspects of democracy is outright violence. So, um, yeah. So, 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 um, yeah, I think it's it's kind of clear where you're coming from. Now, my 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 my, my next kind of thing is moving on to the substance of of, of your book, um, uh, the democracy amendments, constitutional reforms to save the United States. Um, from from what I understand, you're you know you you've identified more than 20 meaningful amendments, although, you know, I don't know whether you kind of elaborate on every single one of those, but there is a very large number of amendments that you think would be necessary to really fix the problem. Now, you know, it's a bit like, it's a bit like a car, you know, you, you, you get it serviced and, and one thing, you know, the, the brakes don't work or this doesn't work, but when it builds up at some point, you sort of say it's a write-off. Um, and the question right. is, is the American institution at this point a write-off, or can it actually be reformed? You know, you know, where do you start? No, that's that's a great analogy. Um, but uh, uh, you have to imagine instead that you own an old vehicle in Cuba, where allegedly you can't get new vehicles easily. So there's really there's no new cars for sale, right? You only have this one vehicle, <laughs> and it needs twenty new parts. But <laughs> you're not going to. That that would be the analogy I would offer. Unfortunately, there are some proposals out there. Uh, there was an interesting one published by the Democracy Journal not long ago, where like twenty scholars or so came together and wrote a whole new constitution. Um, and I've seen that attempted a couple other times as well. It's very interesting uh, what's produced. I think usually, I mean, if you're going to write a whole constitution, you have to address a lot of substantive issues as well, like. Should we change what's in the Bill of Rights? You know, should we change the right to privacy, uh, rights to health care, women's rights concerning, you know, control of uh, uh, of their womb, you know, abortion? Should you change um, a gun, rights to own a gun, which seemed to be a big deal for a lot of Americans? So once you get into rewriting the whole thing, you have to face a lot of um, third rails, you know, really, really um, fiery issues that can drive uh, people away quickly. So in the end, I think, um, although 25 amendments is a lot, um, that actually even just doing a few of them in the first round, it might take several rounds of constitutional reform to enact m most of these needed changes. I think people could see that uh, as an adaptation of what we're used to now. Uh, rather than scrapping completely the whole thing and starting anew, that would scare people off like mad. Unfortunately, um, because there's not very good civics education in the United States, that's one of the amendments actually would put that in place. People don't understand constitutional reform at all here. It's been so long now. It's been half a century since this country passed uh, and ratified any constitutional amendment. Um, at least of great substance. There was one that happened in the 90s. It's a funny story. Uh, but the, the last significant ones were the end of the poll tax and allowing people to vote at age 18 rather than 21. Um, and another amendment passed to give Washington, D.C. representation in Congress uh, back in 1978, I think, but it wasn't ratified in time. So um, people are not used to it now. And if you tell them we want to change the Constitution, they think that you're going to reinstate slavery or you know, <laughs> that people's paranoias kick in like mad that if, if you're going to make too many changes, maybe you're going to take away my rights. So you have to tell them, no, 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 no. We're just trying to change some of the basic rules of the game so that it works better. Like um, 
you know, uh, when we started to use um, automatic replay or the computer to judge whether the ball is in or out in tennis, it's just things like this that will improve the game. Um, and so I think that introducing, if I actually say a constitutional convention was, was called, and we can talk about this more later if you like, but I, if I were going to such an event, I would probably suggest that we propose in convention maybe 10 or 12 of these amendments. And if the convention could adopt and propose half of them, say six, but out there, say only three were ratified by enough states, it would be, that would be great. That would change everything because when people saw, wow, three new amendments were ratified, an 18-year term on the Supreme Court, say, I think would, would be very um, popular. I think you, you could get Republicans to vote for that. Um, the filibuster is gone, right, in the Senate. Um, and maybe, you know, um, some kind of a restriction on gerrymandering. That could actually be done through ordinary law, but um, it would be better if it was in the Constitution. Right? It would be more secure. Let me, yes. let me before, before we go on to the specific okay. amendments that you're proposing, yeah. um, just in case people aren't aware of, you know, what is actually involved in basically going, take, doing an amendment to the Constitution, what is the actual parliamentary mm. process? What, what, you know, what's the actual lawmaking process, constitutional process that has to be followed right. to, to bring about an amendment? If you could just talk us very briefly through what kind of majority is required and, and so on and so forth. How does the process work? Right, there, there are two pathways. I'll, I'll start with the one that's been used. The other one's actually never been used, uh, which is the convention pathway. Um, so the United States constitution is either the hardest or nearly the hardest uh, constitution of any developed or advanced democracy in the world to change. Um, and that's because when uh, the founders uh, wrote this document in 1787, and this part of it's never been changed since then, um, we haven't changed the amendment procedure itself that, by an amendment. Um, they had very little to draw on. Almost none of the states uh, at the time, which were only you know a few years old, had any uh, kind of um, very clear pathway towards changing the state constitutions. You also wouldn't find this much in European constitutions at the time because there were not many, right? And they were, you know, uh, either kind of, you know, federalists or confederations for loose alignments of entities, um, you know, say in the, in, in the Netherlands or in Switzerland would have been two examples. They had very little to go on in imagining this. Um, they knew that the previous, uh, confederation of states, which lasted about 10 years or 12 years after our Revolutionary War, couldn't be changed at all because it required unanimous consent of all 13 states to make any change to it. So they thought they were being progressive and, and radical by saying, well, no, you only need two thirds of Congress, both chambers, House and Senate, to vote for an amendment, and then it can go to the states, which have to approve it by three quarters, not not a unanimous consent, but only only three quarters of the states, um, or likewise through a convention, uh, that could be by simple majority of the convention, uh, which is interesting, not two thirds, uh, and then again three quarters of the states to to ratify or approve an amendment proposed by the convention or Congress. Um, so it's a it, well, it's a two step process if you go through Congress um, and then to the states. But it's a three-step process if you first have to call a convention uh, and then the convention proposes amendments and then they're ratified. 
Um, so the, the second route is slightly more complicated, and I can explain. Um, but as I say, the founders thought they were making it easier <laughs> to amend the Constitution in doing that, because the only point of comparison they had was a system where you required you know, unanimous consent to change, um, like we might have with certain treaties, right? You couldn't probably, well, if, if you wanted to change the, um, the treaties that constitute the European Union, um, you might not need unanimous consent. Well, you probably would, because if a country didn't agree with it, they would probably leave the European Union as a result of such a change. So, At this point, you yeah. need unanimity, unfortunately, but that's a principle yeah. that quite a number of, especially pro-Europeans, are trying to get rid of, because mm. unanimity is a, it, you know, it's, it's actually kind of quite anti-democratic. You get, in the case of Europe, you get countries like Hungary or Poland, who some would say aren't on the, on the, on the borderline of being democratic uh, in many right. respects, and they can block, block, block. Uh, uh, progressive legislation. So, um, so unanimity is is actually not necessarily the best way to go. But I'm I'm, I'm sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I may just throw in and another example is NATO, uh, which has what almost thirty members now, maybe maybe a little more. Um, and Turkey's holding up uh, Sweden. Yeah. Because you you need all members of NATO to agree, which of course only gets harder every time you admit a new country. Um, so it, it, it actually gets worse that the, the more popular uh, the organization is. So unanimous consent requirements, and the filibusters like this too, to an extent, what they do is they reduce coordinative power. That, that's the underlying, if you like, mathematical point about it, is that uh, either the ability to coordinate uh, decisions that are binding on everyone and the ability to enforce them. Um, are reduced with uh, with requirements. Um, the larger the supermajority, the max, of course, being unanimous consent, the the lower your coordinative power. Um, whereas simple majority is the the most powerful, obviously, for coordinating uh, decision making. Uh, but you have to get everyone to agree to it. So the result in the American case um, is that it's become steadily harder over time to amend the Constitution um, because. Well, the very problems that the flaws in the system cause, the extreme polarization of the country, um, the lack of civic education, um, the ability to kind of brainwash people through advertising that's paid for with big donations to campaigns and other independent spending because we have no limits on that. Um, so all of these problems that are a result of the constitutional flaws now inflame the party divisions to such a point that it's unimaginable that you could get two thirds majority to pass any amendment through Congress, let alone three quarters of the states. Are you- um, Something simple. I, I, yeah. I didn't matter of interest. Are you um, referring to or referencing any, because I mean, I'm, I'm aware of kind of two constitutional reforms. Um, one, one in Africa, Kenya, I mean, after 2008, mm. it had, you know, like at yes. the election, there was massive tribal unrest and, and kind of bordering on civil war. I think 1,200 people died, a large number of people died, many more got right. injured. And it, 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 really, it really clouded the whole presidential campaign. Um, and so they, they started a, a reform process. And in 20, I think 11, 2010, 2011, they brought in an entirely new and a brand new constitution. Um, and I believe, although only parts of it have actually been implemented. I mean, having a, they have a great constitution, but it's isn't really been implemented fully. But having said that, uh, it has served its, in my view, or from what I can see, its primary purpose to somehow 
reduced sort of tribal tensions because they brought in a sort of a, a, a sort of a, a middle tier of government, like a regional government. They brought in counties and they kind of brought in this sort of uh, regional government and that yeah. massively kind of diffused tensions and really helped. Subsidiarity, right. That, that's right. So, it, it, I mean, it's, it's, an in, it's, it's an imperfect process and it's, it's, it's imperfectly implemented, but it has actually served the purpose. And of course, the, the big example of a very successful uh, uh, constitutional reform, of course, is Ireland. I don't know whether you, uh, you, you were, and they had, of course, a constitutional, uh, you know, convention, and that is often quoted as a very successful example of how to how to do constitutional reform. Um, are you using any examples of successful constitutional reforms to to make your case, or are you sort of shying away from that? Well, you know, it's unfortunate. I wish I had more room in the book. <laughs> it's already longer than it should be, and I would have included. Uh, those kind of comparisons with other countries. Another interesting example would be Iceland recently, yes. went a process where, um, you know, they kind of um, test tested out what people thought by using citizen juries to make proposals. And then I believe some of them were, you know, were, were adopted by the parliament or proposed to the people for ratification. Um, another case would be South Africa, although much more difficult in many yeah. respects. Um, but it's... It's easier in countries that have had a parliamentary system of some kind or another, I think, to, you know, to put changes out to the people and say, we're going to ratify this by, you know, a nationwide plebiscite. By, uh, since that we've never had that in this country, it would seem revolutionary to do that. Uh, and there are some American reformers. Um, uh, Sandy Levinson, a, a, one of the most renowned constitutional scholars of the last half century in the United States, uh, and Akhil Amar, a professor of law at Yale University. Uh, and there are a few others, but those two most prominently have proposed that we do just what you described. Let's hold a convention. Let's write a new document. You know, we could copy a lot of the old to the in the places where it's good and then change the rest and then put it to the people of the United States. If they vote, you know, by 51 percent for it, it's done. I think this country is not ready for that. Uh, I wish it were. I think if you did that, you would only have civil war. Um, and there are a lot of guns in private hands in this country. <laughs> it wouldn't be pretty. So I don't think, I mean, if people got used to a process of constitutional reform, say we had gone through, as I was suggesting, one convention that, you know, three or four amendments got ratified out of it. People now see, oh, okay, so this is what constitutional reform is. Now, um, you know, I have a significant vote in the presidential election because we elected directly. I see that more things are passing the Senate now. Um, not all of them are good. We made a couple of mistakes. We have to go and repeal those laws and stuff. But uh, people see now how, how constitutional change can produce progress. They start to believe in it as a, as a useful means of, of dealing with the things that are bugging them the most and making them most angry. Then you would have um kind of the foundation of public trust on which you then might be able to you know take this more radical kind of step and and um yes and and you know rewrite the whole thing kind of more fully which is basically what they did in 1787 um so you could compare that a little bit more to say like the situation in south africa well i guess that's not really a very good comparison um uh, the problems among the states though were so bad that they were ready to break into three or four regional alliances. Um, at most, so they would have maybe been at war with each other or, or at least extreme tensions. Uh, and they could have been picked off by various European powers, you know, the 
French and the Spanish and the British might might each have allied with one of those three groups of four or five states or three or four states. And you can you can imagine how bad that the results would have been. So the convention said, look, you know, we just have to scrap the old Articles of Confederation. They're no good. Um, and given it, the situation that resulted, it was very clever, right? Because people knew that they couldn't live with the status quo. They recognized that it was going to destroy them. And so their only other salient option was the one that was proposed by the convention. A number of people hated it, and they were gnashing their teeth and wailing and angry. You can imagine the large states like Virginia were very angry about the way the Senate was composed of equal senators from each state. So unfair. You know, Rhode Island has one twelfth the number of people that, you know, Virginia is at least 10 or 11 times more people than Rhode Island and Delaware. It's, it's gotten six times worse than that ever since. But they had no other alternative the problem is you know, that's that wouldn't be the case now, right? If you if you proposed a new document, um, you know that that kind of compiled all everything into one big amendment, let's say, um, people would just see that as like, you know, you're you're trying to shove all this down my throat at once. No, you know, and you wouldn't you might not even get a, a simple majority, let alone what what you need for a full yeah just one one last question that's sort of very much in the back of my mind and that takes it to the sort of the international or the global level i mean it's one thing for ireland or for iceland or say for kenya uh, to you know to to reform its constitution it's another thing for like the united states who sort of if you like the kind of the, the global leader in so many respects uh, you know, economically, uh, militarily, and, and some would say also in terms of de democratic values, although I think, you know, the, the jury is out there, but but there is this sort of thing about, you know, being in that leadership position, uh, you're much more, it's much harder to change, isn't it? It's like then to be in the shadows, you know, it's like if you're a small country like Iceland, then whatever you do, it's probably going to affect you most and other people less so, but Right. It's like when when the EU kind of thinks about constitutional reform, then the world holds its breath because there's you know implications for trade and all the rest. And of course, right. the, the same or to an even greater extent that would go for the US. Do you think that that is a factor that might hold reform back? Well, um, in a way, I my answer would be I wish it I wish it would. That might sound paradoxical, but, but what I mean is that too many Americans don't know enough about the role that the U.S. plays uh, in global affairs to even understand the, imp the importance of constitutional change here in that regard. They would if, if, um, if education were changed here to require, say, two semesters of civics, which would include, you know, some of how um, the United States makes foreign policy and, and its effects on, on the rest of the world. Um, but people in leadership positions here in politics, they all understand, including most of the Senate, that what we do, you know, has great effects on the rest of the world. And it's really bad when we're trying to, you know, resist um, propaganda coming from Putin's, um, you know, trolls and, uh, and his bots. Uh, and um, uh, the rising appeal of dictatorship, it seems, to more and more people in different countries around the world. The appeal to a kind of brutal kind of ethno-nationalism uh, that you see in, in, you know, well, what originally brought uh, Putin's rise to, to power, it might be eroding a little now, uh, but the same kind of thing obviously at work in China, um, you know, with with almost kind of veiled but 
not very veiled suggestions that there's almost like even a racial superiority and very definitely at least a cultural superiority um, that's you know being suggested by the Chinese Politburo. Um, so we're we're dealing with a world in which dictators um, have rising influence and authoritarianism is challenging democracy. It's terrible in that situation for the United States to be weakened by its internal problems. Um, so absolutely, that, that is an important aspect of this. But that threat, right, to, to the U.S. world leadership, um, I don't think would move many Americans. You might get 10 or 15 percent would listen to that argument. I wish it, I wish it were more. But nevertheless, even if people don't understand it, it is an important reason why we need to, you know, to avoid a collapse of the system here. And I do say that in the book. If that happens, the only winners will be uh, President Putin and President Xi. Uh, That's right. And, and of course, and of course, you know, elites on both the Democratic and the, the, the Republican side will, as you said, will understand, too. And I suppose it, it will be to some extent an elite game. You know, so in terms of right. who's going to decide whether there is going to be a constitution reform or not, it's it, it's it's probably going to be decided at a, at a, at a, at a political level. Um, yeah. and, and the awareness would be there uh, uh, at that level. Well, but if, if I just insert, I mean, things are getting so bad. That in the 2016 election, um, you know, Trump welcomed Russian interference in the election. And, and I think, I mean, you know, given that people will believe apparently whatever this kind of demagogue says, uh, there are a lot of Americans now, people accuse Tucker Carlson of this on Fox News here, of maybe being like, well, okay, if, if foreign interference in the election and, you know, stealing or breaking into uh, the, uh, the opposition's campaign, stealing data from them, releasing it on WikiLeaks and stuff. If this will help us, the view seems to be among too many Republicans by any means necessary. It doesn't matter how evil, how corrupt, how wrong or unjust, if it will help us win. So one has to find a way of deterring and kind of ratcheting that back and understanding that if you do that, if you go too far down that route, well, then, you know, too much of the leadership in both main parties might end up actually being, to some extent, puppets of other people around the world. I mean, these are huge dangers. I do stress this is in the kind of the later chapter. I put the top 10 amendments up front. But in the third chapter, where 15 others are detailed, I have one that deals directly with this question of foreign intervention in campaigns. And people don't understand that, um, you know, there's a danger also of blackmail. You know, if, if you've hacked into or have a lot of personal data from a lot of different members of Congress, right, and you can threaten to release that data if they don't vote, say, to remove tariffs on, you know, to, or sanctions on Russia, or you, you could see this is, this is not a conspiracy theory. Uh, there's a, you know, a detailed document um, by the FBI on this risk. Oh, yeah. So you, this, I think, Americans will understand if, if pressed this point will register with people and they'll say, okay, I see there's a danger of blackmail. We need to ensure that our campaigns aren't being funded or helped by, um, by uh, this kind of foreign interference. And I actually have a whole raft of good governance reforms, which these don't get a lot of discussion. They're not like the filibuster or the presidential election. They're not kind of hot button topics. But when presented to the average American, you might find that 70, 80%, maybe more, 90% in some cases would agree with these. They're simple good governance reforms to remove um, conflicts of interest, um, you know, to prevent 
foreign influence on campaigns and things like that. So, so let's yeah. let's have let's have a quick look at your top three amendments mm. just to make it bring it down to a very practical level again because we've been talking very high level yes. which i think is really really important but <laughs> what you actually are contributing here to the debate is something very practical in in, in in your book and we don't want to lose sight of this so maybe if you give us three examples in a nutshell <laughs> how they would drastically improve the body politics and politic making in the u.s today Yes, I well, I tried to prepare an answer uh, for this, Nico, and I, I wrote down five things. So I'm not doing well. Go ahead with well. five, then, uh, please. But, but yes, uh, it, yeah, I I do have trouble with this. I go back and forth with which ones to put in the in the top three. Uh, definitely, the first one, if I could just you know um, change by pressing a button or waving a magic wand, I would uh, eliminate the filibuster. Okay. Um, because I think the result of that would be well. For example, if there had been no filibuster in the last two years, um, then a package of uh, reforms to uh, American elections would have passed. Uh, gerrymandering would have been not eliminated, but greatly suppressed. Um, and uh, there would have been far fewer um, restrictive voter laws, which states have adopted the last couple of years. Um, and I think the Democrats would have won the House of Representatives, as I started by saying. <laughs> but then we're back to a partisan argument here. <laughs> well, yes, but right. That sounds like a partisan argument. But my point is that this one change enables so many other things. It's sort of like, you know, removing uh, the barrier in a dam that, you know, the, the, the floodwaters then flow um, and people might not like the results. But then what do they have to do? They have to elect a Republican majority. They only need 51 senators now. And then they can reverse all of these changes if they want. Let them, I'd like to see them try to do that. How popular it would be. You try to imagine, right, that, that you know, the filibuster had been eliminated. The Voting Rights Act, the new Voting Rights Act had been enacted. There's an important piece of history on that I can come back to. It's shocking. Um, But it didn't, right? Because of the filibuster, the so-called For the People Act passed the American House, but not the Senate due to the filibuster. Then what you would see, I think, is just, you know, a shift to a new equilibrium, right? The Republican Party would start to take advantage of the fact that there's no filibuster. And they would, they would pass, they could no longer grandstand and say, oh, I want to pass a bill that bans all abortions nationwide and vote for me because this is what I want to do. And a lot of, you know, um, the more extreme party base will vote for this. If they actually could pass that through the Senate, would they actually dare to do it, right? That now we are calling the bluff, if you see what I mean, right? So it's, its effect on politics would be great. The, the incentive to just keep a problem going in order to fundraise off of it, which is a very perverse incentive that now operates in the U.S. Congress, We almost don't want, we don't, the last thing we want to do is resolve the immigration problem on the southern border, because then people would think, okay, that's done, on to the next stuff, right? No, you want, if you're a Republican strategist, you want that problem to remain. Of course. Like a wound that never heals, so you can keep milking it for all it's worth. So oh, the filibuster, yeah. yes, you see that. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, if, should I name two others, or do you want to ask something about yes, that? Go ahead. Um, so then after that, I think I would go to the 18-year term for the Supreme Court, uh, partly because I consider it low-hanging fruit. I think there's so many conservative lawyers and commentators who've approved it. 
now um, that is an issue that you really would have to see how you would phase that in because some Republicans would see that as, oh, you want to get rid of Trump's justices and stuff. So you have to phase it in in a way that doesn't threaten that. The explanation to people has to be what this does as soon as it's fully phased in is it ensures that each president will nominate two justices. You have nine and you have an 18 year term. What happens is two retire every four year term. So you, you connect it with the presidential term. What happens if somebody dies or retires early or whatever? You replace them with um, either by lottery or some other mechanism from our uh, appeals courts, the circuit courts of appeals that we've got here. Um, so the president isn't involved. This greatly depoliticizes uh, the Supreme Court because there's no longer these huge stakes fights to put someone in there who's going to be there for 30 years. Um, the term is more limited. With the amendment should also go um, requirements for the Senate to vote in a certain amount of time. So you couldn't see what happened uh, to Obama's last appointee, Merrick Garland, during his last term, where the Senate just re re refused to vote. You would see a more regular order. It would ratchet down um, you know, the, the issue of, of you know, both you know, when, when is somebody going to retire, um, how could we get them to do that, and then the partisan fight over confirmation in the Senate. All of this is greatly reduced. It would, it would remove one of the great goads or instigators to partisan extremism in the United States, and I think help the whole political culture. People would know, look, when I vote for president, I'm also voting for two, two court justices. He's going to nominate or she's going to nominate a couple people. You could imagine presidential candidates even putting out, like, if I win, I'm going to nominate these two people. I mean, if, if they thought that that would help them win the election, right? So it would just connect it with the presidential election. So that, I also think, is very productive and eminently doable if it's posed in the right way. You're not getting rid of current justices. And then the third, I decided after thinking about it more, that I think the campaign finance reforms needed here might be the most important because again, it's not exactly low hanging fruit. It, it would be a partisan fight, but if you poll Americans, more than two thirds of them think the so-called Citizens United verdict from the Supreme Court here was wrong. That was the verdict that um, along with an earlier decision from the 1970s allowed kind of unlimited money in American politics. In many cases, it doesn't even have to be disclosed. The real kicker with that verdict from the Supreme Court was that it allowed unlimited spending by corporations and other you know, very wealthy people um, through so-called independent groups. There's still limits on what you could give to a candidate um, and their official campaign, but that almost doesn't matter because you could just buy as many advertisements on TV or um, you know, um, create your own radio show to publicize your views and stuff. That, that's all basically unlimited ever since Citizens United. Um, imagine what people in Georgia are going to go through, having just been through this two years ago, with uh, the avalanche of election advertising before the runoff um, for uh, the uh, Warnock perhaps getting reelected to the American Senate in Georgia. But if the Senate majority turned on it, it would have even been worse, right? You could have seen many millions of dollars of advertising in Georgia in the next two weeks. Well, I mean, these midterm uh, elections, the, the ones we've just gone through, from what I understand, were the most expensive elections in the history of the United States. 
Oh yeah. An overall oh. price tag of over 70 billion. I mean, this it's is insane. just this is absolutely crazy. Um and yeah, um and, and of course it, it it totally voids the notion of democracy because of course I mean I think one of the things that I thought was really impressive about, about Obama's you know like campaign at the time was the small donations aspect of it you know the, the micro donations the the ten dollar twenty dollars fifty dollars that people would put in through the you know uh, the, the the platform that he whatever was called uh, MuFondo right. was it yeah um, yes. and I think that was that was an, an amazing mobilization sort of grassroots mobilization and you had a sense that people ordinary people could put their money where their mouth is but on the whole it's 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 a big boys game isn't it it's it's kind of yeah. big big corporates it's the billionaires game um and and ordinary people sort of tend not to have their voice heard um, and it, it right and it doesn't end with the election because then once you're in congress um you you will be influenced in what laws you pass by the lobbyists who are coming to talk with you and being like, listen, you know, this is our view, the people I represent, this is what we think. And there's no like, if you don't vote for this, we're not going to give you any campaign money. At least usually they don't come right out and say that, but it's implied, right? Um, often without even having to spend money, just the threat of it can operate. So the figures you just looked at don't tell even, even that doesn't tell the whole story because you have members of Congress who think, well, you know, if I don't, enact this law, if I block this proposed bill or I change something in a proposal that increases taxes on hedge fund managers, for example, that's one that keeps getting extended. They, they keep getting that. Uh, people try to eliminate it and it constantly remains in, in the bill, no matter what they do, because their lobby is so strong. If I vote to change this or close this tax loophole, my um, funders will, will, uh, will then give huge amounts of money to a primary challenger. Right. And since we have so many safe seats, they're gerrymandering again. The primary election is so important in many congressional districts. So without even spending a dollar, they have bought the law, right? Because of the mere threat, the mere threat of it. Uh, to keep that threat alive and realistic, they spend a certain amount of money, which is what you. I have several, actually many charts and figures in this book. It's hard to do, you know, a philosopher's not used to doing this kind of uh, work with tables and charts and graphs. But if you look at the one on all the ones, I have three on campaign spending. They measure different things. The line is steadily upwards, right? Well, I should go from your perspective this way, right? It just, it, it, it's, it never comes down, right? I mean, it, and the change after Citizens United is enormous, right? I mean, it took the huge jumps upwards, um, both in what campaigns are spending, you know, and independent spending. And then if you break it out by like the presidential versus the congressional elections, they're all getting more expensive to the point where it looks, and it simply is, you know, an arms race. Uh, as you know, if you studied any social science, you know, an arms race is a prisoner's dilemma, right? It just, that takes the form of a prisoner's dilemma. That's the kind of collective action problem it is. So um, it, it's, it's almost like people blame the members of Congress for being corrupt, and a few of them are. But the way I explain it in the book is, look, that it's more like imagine that you, you know, you, you're one of many small business owners in a small town in southern Italy back in the 1950s, right? So you and a hundred other small shopkeepers. Well, there's two different mafia groups, and each one protects different shop owners. Right. If you don't pay the mafia group your 
whatever they claim you owe them per week or per month, they'll stop protecting you and the other mafia group will devour you. That's the situation that members of Congress are in. It's, you know, because it's an arms race, they have to take the money, they have to take the support uh, from big donors. You, you can't make it up completely with the small donations, at least not yet. Um, and so they're, they're caught. The system perpetuates itself. What the amendment that I propose would do, and it's a complicated amendment, unfortunately, because there are a lot of moving parts to this. It's also difficult to explain to students. People don't understand because the laws that we have are so convoluted. I go through the history in that part of the book in quite quite a lot of detail. Uh, but the amendment, what it would do is it would boost that small donation component. And what you do is you say, the government will give you a transferable voucher, $50, $100 maybe. You can allot that or divide it into maybe four or five pieces, give it to whichever candidate you want, and maybe also to an independent group like the League of Women's Voters, or um, um, you know, the, if you support the NRA for guns, you could give it to them, or um, you know, maybe uh, an environmental organization like the World Wildlife Fund. All of these groups do lobbying here, right? So the, the person, the voter doesn't get that money, but they can give it to someone else. Yeah. And that, by the way, is where you need like the threshold, like the five or 10% comes into play um, with small parties, you know, Otherwise, you could get people running just to get that money and give their wife a job or their husband a job or something. So you do have to have some protections. But so that's one part of the the um, amendment, that transferable voucher uh, that would empower small donations. But the other part has to be spending caps. It just has to reverse spending, you know, um, Citizens United. And that's tough because um, conservatives here sometimes argue that, look, it's a free speech issue. But it really isn't because. Um, if if I take up every minute available um, in a public meeting, you know, they say it's three hours and I hold the floor for three hours and no one else gets a chance to speak. Is that my free speech right? No, I mean, I'm, you know, curtailing other people's right to speech. It's very much like that with the election advertising and crowds out everything else, right? The onslaught. Yeah. It, it, and of course, it, I mean, the other thing right. that, that would happen there as well, it's not just the crowding out. But it also drives up prices. So, you know, yeah. the space, you know, because it's, you know, it's demand and supply. So the, the advertising time that is available gets more expensive. So let me, let me so, right. so I think this is this this has been really, really interesting. But let me ask you to give us just a really short pitch why you think that a constitutional convention would be the way to go. Mm. Three minutes. Right. I realize that we're running out of time. Well, my computer won't show me the clock, but yes. Um, so, boy, this is a big one. And I think most likely to be shocking to, you know, to many readers, because unfortunately at the moment, the idea of calling into convention has become associated with a far right group called the Convention of States. All they want to do is, well, they want to, sometimes they want to pass a balanced budget amendment, but they also want to give states more power and reduce the federal government's power. So, for example, we would have been able to do even less to coordinate a response to COVID when it came. Um, that's not at all, of course, the agenda proposed in my book, uh, but the convention route, what it does is it gets around the roadblocks in Congress. Um, it appeals to the populism that's at work in the country right now, because people can say, yes, the state governments can call this convention directly uh, without, um, you know, Congress being able to stop it. 
That's not completely true. There's actually a, 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 a small fly in, in that ointment or a, a small um, hitch with that. I can come back to the time permits. Um, but in principle, when two thirds of the states say we want a new convention, Congress is supposed to arrange it uh, and then it can meet. Then you have two other advantages with that route. First, as I was mentioning, the convention um, can just uh, make proposals or pass them out of convention by simple majorities. They don't need to vote by two thirds. There's a question of how you decide, you know, how states are going to be represented within the convention. Should they be equal numbers of delegates from each state? Should, you know, should they be more from California and less from a small state? Uh, so you have that battle that I make detailed proposals on all these things. Maybe some compromise, like you could have maybe five delegates from the largest states and one from the smallest states. How I mean, do they the, vote the interesting. The, the interesting yes. example in Ireland, of course, is that they kind of had two, they had, you know, politicians, yes, yes. but they also had ordinary citizens take part in the convention. And exactly. that actually proved highly, highly beneficial because it, it kind mm. of opened the black box and it made this a right. much more transparent and a much more trustworthy process. I mean, you might have thoughts on that too. I do, yeah. And then I'll come back to the last advantage of the convention that I, I didn't get to. Um, the way I suggest it, and at the moment, this would have to be done by Congress writing a law when they when they um, call the convention together and, and organize it. Um, I would suggest that no politician be allowed to. I think it could be done. They could bring experts with them. Each state delegation could bring one or two. But I would suggest that the law say, because there's no details in the Constitution about this at all. Um, the law say that no one who presently serves in the federal or any state government could come. Now, people work for small county or township governments, fine. Um, but yeah, and that even more strongly, um, maybe they can't work for a government for five or 10 years after the convention ends. So you really do make this a people's convention, right? And again, the experts can come and guide relative newbies who don't you know, understand the ins and outs of different constitutional problems. But that to me would be the ideal convention and so you 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 have people who aren't you know needing worried about a primary challenge, you know if they don't say the right thing and you know aren't worried about big lobbies, uh, but thumb their nose at those guys. Uh, and even better still, if we followed what the original convention did, it's amazing they, how much how they stuck to this. It would be closed, so the proceedings would be secret, and the big lobbies couldn't you know run massive advertising campaigns to try to you know, to, to sort of shortcut uh, or to sabotage what they were doing. Now, it would simply happen probably after the convention made its proposals. But at that point, the excitement, right, from the popular involvement, I think it would snowball so quickly it would become unstoppable, right? Once you called a convention and it actually met and, you know, by hook and crook or miracle, it managed to pass five, six, seven proposals, People would, would not accept, I think, the result that they're all just negated by all the states. I think it would people would want something positive to come out of it. I think at this point, you know, the big lobbies and the big foundations that, you know, sometimes serve as lobbies here would be would be um yeah, they would just be outgunned. They they would be overwhelmed. Of course, you have you have one 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 aspect, one thing going for you in the US. 
that that we don't have in Germany, and that is trial by jury. So you you know the members yeah. of the convention would be like jurors in a in a in a, in a trial, exactly. and very similar rules would apply in terms of them being influenced and so on and so forth. Like um, a sequester jury. That's exactly the analogy I use. So right. so and and in the U.S. there is some kind there's trust in the jury system. In Germany, people would say, how can a lay person ever kind of be involved in a, you know, in a, in a, in, 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 right. a, in, in, in that capacity? It's, it's a judge's responsibility to, you know, um, and so, so of course the U.S. has a major advantage here in terms of actually doing this because people understand the concept of the jury, so they would understand the responsibility they enter into if they, if they take part in a convention. That's a good point that you made. I wish I, I might have to squeeze that in in the copy edited version of the manuscript about the difference from Europe in that respect, because I do lean heavily on the jury analogy. And you're right. I think most people here do trust juries. I mean, they don't always get it right, but but they're pretty reliable uh, and people usually agree. Uh, the principle the is trusted. Right. The principle is trusted. There's always oh, the O.J. Simpsons of this world where the whole yeah. thing breaks down. But, you know, right. the, but the principle is trusted. Even to this day, where politicians right. are no longer trusted, uh, juries are on the whole. And I think that's a really interesting uh, aspect there. Um, yeah. And so I don't know if I have a minute left, um, but I would say, you know, that um, that process through a convention, uh, it just would create such excitement. Right. Every school would be teaching about it. Right. If children's competitions going on, like, what do you think should be changed in the Constitution? It would create just such an unstoppable kind of a movement. Um, that I, I really do think that the sort of the spoilers, the naysayers that so dominate our system now, it would just be a total end run, which is the analogy we use in American football, uh, uh, you know, to, around these kind of obstacles or roadblocks in the current system. It would be so great for the country, um, you know, even if the convention didn't produce that much just to, to have gone through it, um, I think would sort of change the political atmosphere. The difficulty or the sticking point is to get Congress to accept that 34 states have called for a convention. You know, how can they hold this up? Would the Supreme Court intervene? It could be a mess actually trying to get from the states calling to, you know, a convention meeting. That's the part that worries me the most. Um, but, yeah, I think it would change everything. And it's the most likely route to succeed, given the difficulty of if you pass amendments one by one through Congress, every lobbyist in the world is going to jump on that. They're not dealing, you know, with several amendments at once. That's the final advantage I'll mention of a convention is, which should be obvious from the, the history of the first convention, is they can make deals, right? They can connect one amendment with another and just wrap them into one amendment. So they say things like, the example I use in the book is, you want a balanced budget amendment? Many conservatives want that. I can see the reasons. I talk about our our, deficit, our annual deficits in one section, but many liberals don't like that, right? The balanced budget amendment. Um, but it, okay, so let's connect that with direct election of the presidency. We'll give you a version of your balanced budget amendment, but at the same time, we're going to eliminate the electoral college. See, a convention can do that. You'll never but do you that. See, but but the other thing is, and I think this is an interesting aspect as well. I you know I, I think one of the sort of the general sort of experiences with conventions, citizens conventions, citizens assemblies, uh, is is that um, that that they don't necessarily sort of deploy the same transactional mindset that you get in formal politics. Uh, right. They are 
you know, the, 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 it's a different, it's a different kind of negotiating logic that that actually kind of unfolds because yeah. you're not looking at a professional. Yeah, that's right. You're not looking at people that are used to representing interests and bartering in that kind of sense. But they're yes. coming to it from a, a, a personal ethical point of view. Uh, what would be good for me? What would be good for my family? And that's where they would sort of start. Um, yeah. and exactly so, right. Uh, now, I so, think, you know, when it comes down to brass tacks, you could see a few bargains or deals being made. But you're right. I think it would start out in a convention uh, as long as the whole atmosphere wasn't poisoned by the you know, process of delegate election, I guess, which could happen. I mean, that could be difficult. Um, you would hopefully have delegates there uh, who were willing to start, you know, in a kind of friendly conversation way um, with the guidance of experts who hopefully would, you know, help that process along. Um, so that's right. The convention, I think, it's untried. But, that's but, a but you know, but yeah. as far as the kind of the support of experts or, uh, is concerned. Again, the, the, the jury situation is, is a good comparison. I mean, like in, in jury trials, again, you will have experts advising the jury, um, exactly. both right. on the forensic analysis of what is actually the problem or what is you know the crime in, in the case of the jury, uh, right down to different solutions and what's the law and all the rest so that right. people can use their own common sense to navigate uh, those, uh, uh, those constraints. Um, well, so you can imagine in convention, uh, that, um, you know, okay, today, delegates, uh, we're going to hear from four experts, um, you know, on whether we should increase the size of the House of Representatives. That's another amendment in the book. Or or give them weighted votes so that they better, they're more proportional to the states. We're going to have, you know, two experts who oppose this and, you know, two who think something, you know, that something like this should be done. And hear the pros and cons. And yeah, and then the, effectively the citizen jury there would weigh those arguments that that's right that would be in the ideal case how a convention should work uh, i mean the book ends the last proposal in, in the book is an amendment that would you know sort of write all this itself into the constitution of how a convention should work uh, unfortunately now though and you know given the present constitution we've got it's we're stuck with congress doing it right i mean so congress has to write a a law that structures the convention process in a way that makes it likely to work Rather than sabotaging it, so yes. <laughs> maybe this maybe this could be done, you know, because now that the Republicans will control the House and the Democrats the Senate, maybe they could come to some compromise. Um, or given that they elected politicians could stand to lose from some of the amendments produced by convention, they might just stall forever and say, "No, we don't consider that we've got their tricks they can use to." Say that we we don't think that thirty four states have have validly called for a new convention, so we're not going to do anything. Then maybe the Supreme Court would have to intervene, which would be most unfortunate. Um, it would be. You indeed. get the picture. <laughs> I mean, it is it is it is a difficult process, but I think it is really important at this point to to as you say, and I think your book very much is kind of making a, a major contribution here to, to, to think about the options and the possibilities we have. So it's not just doom and gloom, but the actual pathways to a, a, a better functioning, uh, you know, a more just um, and a more sustainable democratic system. And I think what your right. book is doing is making a, a viable contribution to that. So it's the democracy amendments, constitutional reforms to save the United States. Do you know when it's coming out? Well, I hope to have the production schedule soon. Uh, it could be, I'm not sure how long uh, all these steps will take, but I think, 
uh, by you know early summer or very late spring in 2023 should have this book well before the next presidential election when <laughs> all bets are off and who knows what will happen all these you know potential machinations regarding the electoral college see that itself i mean there's a sense in which as things get worse and people see you know how dangerous the situation is getting that can actually motivate a willingness to consider constitutional reform. Um, I think we saw it a little bit in this last election, the question you started with, people were starting to worry about, should I really vote for this radical MAGA you know, candidate who wants to, you know, to deny every election that they lose? Um, people might see that you know, maybe in a way it would be a good thing if we had a problem with the Electoral College in 2024. I hesitate to say that. I don't want to see people killed in the streets by mobs, uh, for, for Lord's sake. But um, but I think if a problem like this happens, for example, what you might see is a swing state, like a close state, like Georgia or North Carolina. Um, after the Supreme Court says that they can do this, they might say, well, it looks like 51% of people in North Carolina voted for um, Biden or Kamala Harris or whoever's running for Democrat. Um, um, maybe Rock Johnson, that would be a better candidate, maybe. <laughs> and so then the legislature of North Carolina says, mm, I don't know, I don't like these ballots. There were problems with them, I'm alleging. We're going to take over this process. And you know what? The legislature is going to appoint Republican electors. That's, see, when the lid comes off the, the boiling pan at that point. I mean, it, uh, that's the sort of problem I anticipate we could have. But it might at least kind of galvanize attention. You know, and people will realize, wow, we really need to do something. Even worse, but we're probably not likely to get to this. I'm trying to imagine the shock Americans will feel when the House of Representatives ends up selecting a president. And that can happen under this system. If no one wins an outright majority of the Electoral College, because, say, a third-party candidate has won a couple states, wow, then, yeah, then the House selects the president but only by each state delegation taking one vote. So, you know, having a majority of state delegations in the House means you would capture the presidency. I mean, <laughs> I just think, yeah, it's, I think it could spark civil war. It's a disaster for the country. It could. So, yeah, it could. Absolutely. That way. It, um, it, it, it could. Um, John, I'm very, very aware of time. This has been an amazing um, conversation. And um, I know you're not too well today. You have been holding up yes, incredibly sorry. well. I can hear it slightly, but you, you know, you're very clear Thank and your voice, yes, yes, you're, you're uh, oiling yeah, your, your, your vocal cords. Absolutely. Brilliant. It's been really, really nice. I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to the book. Um, you know, if your publisher sends out, you know, proof copies, you know, I'd love to get a side copy in the post. It would be a great pleasure. <laughs> and so um, if, we come, if we talk again next year, I can tell you how many death threats I've received. <laughs> for example, exactly, exactly. So, um, John, yes. thank you very, very much. It's been been really great pleasure and a great privilege to talk to you about this new book. Um, and I hope we're going to keep this conversation going into the future. Uh, for now, I wish you, you know, all the best. I hope you're going to be back to good health very, very soon. And, um, and thank you for coming on. It's been, it's been a really interesting conversation. It's a pleasure, Nita. Thank you so much. This was great. Very helpful. Thank you very much. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.